welcome back to Bizarre, your weekly one-stop shop for everything bizarre. If you're new here, I'm Bridget, and I will be taking you along our Bizarre stories this week. So this week in our full episode, we covered killer kids, but I actually have two extra cases here that didn't make the first episode, so I put them together and we're going to do a little mini episode to put out to get you guys through till next week. These cases are a bit more recent than the ones we covered in the full episode and a little bit less detailed, so this episode is probably going to be no more than 20 minutes, which is why it's a little baby half episode, but I still wanted to include them. Let's hop right into Killer Kids 1.5. First up, we have the case of Alyssa Bustamante, which occurred in the early 2000s. I do want to add a slight trigger warning for this case. There is a brief mention of self-harm and suicidal ideation. Alyssa lived with her grandparents, Gary and Karen Brooke, in St. Martin's, Missouri since 2002. Her mother, Michelle, had addiction issues, and her father, Caesar, was serving time, leaving her to her grandparents' care. Alyssa was presumably a normal teenager in the early 2000s. Friends didn't notice changes in her until 2007, when her YouTube profile listed cutting as one of her hobbies, and she was hospitalized for a suicide attempt. Two years after these initial changes in Alyssa were observed, her behavior took an even worse turn. On October 21, 2009, 15-year-old Alyssa convinced her younger sister to bring 9-year-old Elizabeth Olton, their neighbor, to the forest by their houses to hang out. When the little girl arrived, Alyssa strangled her, slit her throat, and stabbed her eight times in the chest. Alyssa then brought the body to a grave that she had dug five days before in the wood behind her house, buried her, and covered the grave with leaves. After the murder, Alyssa went home, where her grandparents and younger sister knew nothing of what had just gone down. Alyssa then wrote in her journal, quote, I just fucking killed someone. I strangled them and slit their throat and stabbed them. Now they're dead. I don't know how to feel, ATM. It was amazing. As soon as you get over the, oh my god, I can't do this feeling, it's pretty enjoyable. I'm kind of nervous and shaky though right now. Okay, I gotta go to church now, lol. After writing this journal entry, Alyssa attended a church dance at a church that she was actively involved in known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. While this was occurring, the police searched frantically for Elizabeth. Less than a month later, Alyssa appeared in court on November 17, 2009, pleading not guilty. She was indicted on a first-degree murder charge as well as an armed criminal action charge due to her use of a knife in the murder. In January of 2012, Alyssa took a plea deal that lessened the charges to second-degree murder and armed criminal action. She was then sentenced to life imprisonment with the possibility of a conditional release as long as she served a consecutive sentence of 30 years. The appeal against the sentence was denied in March of 2014. Elizabeth Olton's mother, Patricia Priest, settled a lawsuit that she had filed on the terms that Alyssa would disclose all compensation from case coverage to her. Alyssa was then reviewed by several mental health professionals, which all concluded that she has major depressive disorder and borderline personality disorder. There is a possibility of Alyssa being released within the next few years, but I couldn't find a definitive source on that one. This case was reviewed on Deadly Woman and also appeared in, the, in an episode of Kids Who Kill. A thriller film called My Name is A by Anonymous was also loosely based on this case. What I find interesting about this case compared to the other ones we talked about is how recent it is in relation to the others. The fact that she wrote in her journal using phrases like ATM and LOL just really made that hit home for me. 
And we once again have a case here of mommy issues, like we talked about in the full episode, which is just another little interesting bit. All right, that covers Alyssa Bustamante. We are going to move on. Next, we have Eric M. Smith, who was born January 22, 1980, in Steuben County, New York. Eric did have his parents in his life, but reportedly enjoyed spending time with his grandparents, Red and Eddie Wilson, more than his parents. Red said, quote, he would always come in and give us hugs and kisses. He liked being a clown, end quote. As a child, Eric was diagnosed with intermittent explosive disorder. This disorder causes individuals to be violent and incredibly unpredictable and erratic in their behavior. Later, a prosecuting expert said it was an incredibly rare disorder that was even rarer at this age. On August 2, 1993, 13-year-old Eric was riding his bike home from a summer camp that was held in a local park. He was told to leave due to, quote, bad behavior. Four-year-old Derek Robbie was walking alone to the same camp that Eric had just been released from. Eric saw Robbie and lured him into a nearby wooded area. Eric then strangled him, dropped a large rock on the boy's head, and sodomized him with a small stick. The cause of death ended up being blunt trauma to the head with contributing asphyxia. At around 11 a.m., Robbie's mother, Doreen, went to the park to pick up her son, only to find out that he never made it there. After four hours, his body was found. Later that night, Eric went home and confessed to his mother that he had murdered Robbie. Eric's family informed the authorities later that night. The case made national headlines immediately due to the age of the killer and the victim, 13 and 4, respectively. On August 16, 1994, about a year after the murder, Eric was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to the maximum term then available for a juvenile offender, which was a minimum of nine years to life in prison. While in jail, Eric wrote an apology letter to Robbie's family and read it on public television. A piece of this letter said, I know my actions have caused a terrible loss in the Robbie family, and for that, I am truly sorry. I've tried to think as much as possible about what Derek will never experience. His 16th birthday, Christmas, owning his own house, graduating, going to college, getting married, his first child. If I could go back in time, I would switch places with Derek and endure all the pain I've caused him. If it meant that he would go on living, I'd switch places, but I can't. Smith then stated that he could not tolerate the thought of, quote, walls, razor wire, and steel metal bars, end quote, for the rest of his life. He apologized directly to Robbie in interviews. Also, I try to remain pretty consistent in calling both the suspects and the victims by their first name or their last name throughout the entire thing, and I just realized that I've been calling Derek Robbie by both, so my apologies for that. Smith was then held in a juvenile facility for three years before being transferred to an open prison for young adults. In 2001, he transferred to Clinton Correctional Facility, a max security prison. For the next 20 years, he transferred to several more prisons a bunch of times. In that time, he was denied parole 10 times. One of these parole hearings took place in 2012, where the parole board cited a concern for public safety. Derek Robbie's parents opposed his release, obviously. He told a parole board that he was not planning on returning back to his hometown and that he would go to a shelter or halfway house. These claims did not work in his favor, and he was denied parole that time. At a 2014 parole hearing, Eric said that he was bullied by older children at school and that his father and two older sisters also picked on him. He confessed that he took the rage out from these incidents on Derek Robbie, causing him to murder him. 
This also didn't work to grant him parole, and he remained in prison. In October of 2021, after 27 years in prison, Eric was granted parole. He was scheduled to be released on November 18, 2021, but it was delayed because he did not have an approved residence. He ultimately ended up being released on February 1st, 2022, so very recently. I'm not really sure what he's up to now, but what I found most interesting about this case is how recently he got out. Like, we're talking, like, two months ago. So that was Eric M. Smith, who was actually the outlier in these cases because he did have both of his parents in his life. They were just reportedly not the greatest. Alright guys, that should sum up episode 2.5 of The Bazaar, Killer Kids 1.5. If you found these cases particularly interesting, I have a list of some cases of interest that I didn't dive into. I might put them in a later episode, but I'll drop the names if you want to look into them. In my notes for child murderer cases of interest, I have Charlie Starkweather, Cindy Collier and Shirley Wolf, David Brom, and Robert Thompson and John John Venables. Like I said, might cover these cases at some point in the future. Didn't do a lot of research on them before I chose these five cases for these two episodes. But, like I said, if you want to look into them, feel free. Thank you guys so much for listening to episode 2.5 of The Bazaar, and I will see you guys on Sunday. Bye!